Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is August 23rd, 2022, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Bad Habits, Medications for Opioid Use Disorder in the Emergency Department, and our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. He is an emergency medicine physician and assistant professor at the University of Calgary. He's also an avid FOMED supporter, producer, consumer through various online outlets, including the S-Gem. Welcome back to the S-Gem, Chris. Thanks very much, Ken. Yeah, last time we were, uh, we were like in Hawaii hooking up and, you know, telling stories. So you got to have some epic story to tell about this summer. What have you been up to? Anything exciting? Yeah, I went to Europe for a month for all of July and went to uh, Wimbledon and camped there and watched a bunch of tennis and then uh, went to Portugal and Istanbul and Southern Italy and Switzerland. So we've now lost 90% of our listeners because they were working 20 shifts a month covering for you and everybody else was working their little tuchuses off. This was my self, self-imposed reward for being the, the, an emergency department site chief during uh, the pandemic. I think that's a post hoc rationalization. It is definitely a post hoc rationalization, but it, by doing that, I got the benefit of self scheduling, so I was allowed to do it. Well, this is the last episode for season number 10. It might be the best episode because I always think that the episode I'm currently working on is my favorite episode. But starting in September, we are taking the S Gem to 11. Oh, yes, all the great critical appraisals you expect and deserve but with some additional FOMED goodness. We've added Dr. Dennis Wren as our PEDS emergency medicine faculty member who plans to do one episode a month. Guest skeptics will now be asked to declare any potential conflicts of interest and we'll also be doing a few more SGEM extras. I'm getting a little bit more philosophical as the show matures and I age. So that's a big teaser for next season. But let's get this show going with a case. All right. A 24-year-old male presents to the emergency department after a fentanyl overdose. He is successfully resuscitated using naloxone and is stable after an observation period. You are interested in seizing this opportunity to offer some type of help to this patient to prevent another opioid overdose in the future. I love that. Seize the day. Carpe diem. It's an opportunity. Well, we've done a few shows on opioids over the past decade. They include incidents of opioid use disorder. That was on SGEM 264. Observing patients after giving naloxone, SGEM 241. And department guidelines to prevent opioid use disorder way back on SGEM number 55. Way back, man, I was just a baby when SGM 55 came out. You're still a baby. Oh, really? I don't know. Gray hair everywhere. All right, let's get, into, let's get into the background here. So drug overdose deaths continue to rise in the United States with opioids being the number one cause. There are several medications available to treat opioid use disorder, including methadone and buprenorphine, which are the most effective means to decrease future illicit opioid use and death. The emergency department has been identified as a low-barrier environment where medications for opioid use disorder can be initiated, even in resource-constrained settings. And despite relatively easy accessibility of buprenorphine, 
less than 5% of patients discharged from the emergency department after a non-fatal opioid overdose fill a prescription for buprenorphine in the next 90 days. Past studies have focused on clinician-reported barriers to administrating or prescribing buprenorphine in the emergency department. That said, the perspectives and preferences of patients have not been so thoroughly explored. Shared decision-making, or SDM, puts patients at the center of clinical decisions and has been shown to increase knowledge, trust, and adherence in other clinical decisions. A shared decision-making framework that fosters conversations and addresses common misconceptions around medication for opioid use disorder initiation may improve the patient-provider interaction and ultimately increase medication opioid use disorder administration. So Chris, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's podcast? So we're going to ask, what are patients' perspectives regarding the initiation of medications for opioid use disorder in the emergency department? And the reference? Is Schoenfeld et al. Just give them a choice. Patients' perspectives regarding starting medications for opioid use disorder in the ED. From Academic Emergency Medicine, August 2022. That makes it hot off the press. As this is a qualitative study, we'll be using a modified PICO question. So instead of a population intervention, control, or comparison and outcome, we have P for population, I for interest, and C for context. So Chris, what was the population in this study? Patients with opioid use disorder. And the interest? Exploring patient perspectives and experiences with opioid use disorder and using medications for it. And the context? Improving the initiation and adherence to treatment with medications for opioid use disorder from the emergency department. And this is the last SGEM hot off the press episode for season number 10. And it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Elizabeth Schoenfeld. She is an emergency physician and researcher and the vice chair for research in the Department of Emergency Medicine at UMass Bay State. Her research focuses in on shared decision-making in the setting of the emergency department. Welcome to the SGEM, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Elizabeth. This month was originally supposed to have Dr. Lauren Westifer co-hosting the SGEM Hop. However, she is the second author on the paper, and so I traded months with her. How do you know Lauren? So Dr. Lauren Westifer is one of our fabulous clinician researchers, and she is also a co-author on this study. And who are the other co-authors that were on the study with you? We had an absolutely fabulous team of uh, several research staff members, several wonderfully dedicated medical students. Dr. Bill Soras and Dr. Lauren Westifer are two other co-investigators who are physician researchers. And we had a community member named Katie Simon, who is a member of the Urban Survivors Union, which is a national drug users union, and um, a co-executive leader of Whose Corner Is It Anyway, a local mutual aid organization. It was a really fabulous group who put a lot of work into this. I really like that you had a community member involved as well. I mean, we talk about evidence-based medicine and the three pillars of evidence-based medicine and one pillar being the research or the literature, which is supposed to guide and inform our care. And then of course you have clinical judgment and expertise. But that third pillar, which I have to say is sometimes forgotten, is how about the patients? What are their values? What are their preferences? So I absolutely love the fact that you had someone who was on that. 
Yes, absolutely. They are super important. And I will say, I wish that I had uh, been able to get her involved earlier. And going forward in this line of work, we actually have a, a full community steering committee made up about a dozen people in the community and community organizations. Um, and I wish that that steering committee had existed before we did this study, but we sort of didn't know what we needed until we did this. Um, so I guess I would say better late than never. But yes, absolutely. You need your community members involved as early as possible, um, not at the end of your study. Well, I don't think we've covered a lot of qualitative research on the SGEB. And so I want to get a little bit of background information from you and pick your brain a bit because you're an expert in this area. And you use the Ottawa Decision Support Framework to guide your interviews. Can you just explain that process briefly for the SGEM audience? Yeah, I'm really impressed that you're asking about our theoretical framework. Um, so I'm also the qualitative decision editor for academic emergency medicine. So I look at a lot of... Um, qualitative research. And one of the things that's often missing is a theoretical framework. It is a really important part of qualitative research. If you start asking questions without a theoretical framework, you're likely to fall into a trap of not knowing what you don't know. And if you're not asking the right questions, then you're not going to get a good exploration of your list uh, of your issue. So our main goal is to learn how we can facilitate shared decision-making for this issue. So we're using a shared decision-making framework. So we used a combination of frameworks. The first is the Ottawa Decision Support Framework, and it can be found online. It's been used for lots of decision aids, and it basically prompts you to ask about decisional needs and decisional support, and the idea is that you want to know what both patients and clinicians think that patients need to know in order to make a decision. So what are those decisional needs? And then what is the decisional support is how can we help people make this decision? What do they need from us? So for example, at a very basic level, if a person doesn't know about Suboxone, then they can't start it. So they need enough information about Suboxone to be able to even consider it. We could say buprenorphine instead of Suboxone, but I will tell you a lot of our patients know it by Suboxone. So while we really love to use the generic term, sometimes it makes more sense to say Suboxone in terms of talking to patients. To go back to our framework, the second part of our framework was added by our research team based on our previous research and other decision aid development that we've done. And these aspects, I think, may actually be more important. First is the factors relevant to decision-making, and this is clearly going to be specific to the actual decision. So an example here is asking people the broad question of, from your experience, what makes Suboxone a good choice for someone as compared to methadone? And then that participant starts naming these factors about Suboxone that might be relevant to somebody who is making the choice. And then last, the context is important. So many decision aids are made to be used in an outpatient setting. Sometimes patients are mailed a video or a pamphlet at home to look at, and then they come into the doctor's office and discuss. And that is not remotely feasible in our emergency department or in this patient population at all. So we need to know as we develop our, our plan, what is the context of this decision and what do we need to keep in mind as we move forward? Sort of like, what is the bigger picture here? And that's what our theoretical framework helps us do. Well, I would like to endorse and support using Suboxone instead of buprenorphine because I, you know, one of my superpowers is mispronouncing names and of course, knowing the lyrics to every 80s song. So I'm going to be using Suboxone. Okay. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll happily use Suboxone on this one because really we should probably say buprenorphine naloxone if we're really going to do the whole thing, right? It's not just buprenorphine. Yeah. And it's too long. Suboxone is good. And uh, certainly everybody knows it by that name. That's particularly that the patient's taking it. So thanks for the theoretical framework. That's really helpful. Can you give the conclusions to your paper, Elizabeth? Absolutely. Honestly, we learned so much from this study. I feel like I could write a book. 
one of the biggest take-home points for me was that although participants were supportive of offering offering Suboxone in the emergency department, many felt that methadone should also be offered. They felt the treatment needed to be tailored to an individual's needs and circumstances, and they helped us clarify what are the factors that are important considerations for people with opioid use disorder. All right. So Chris, we've got a quality checklist for qualitative research and there's 10 questions. So we're going to run through those quickly before we get to the key result. The first question is, was there a clear statement of the aims of the research? Yes, there was. Is a qualitative methodology appropriate? It is most definitely appropriate. Was the research design appropriate to address the aims of the research? Yes. Was the recruitment strategy appropriate to the aims of the research? It was. Question five, was the data collected in a way that addressed the research issue? Yes, it was. Has the relationship between researcher and participant been adequately considered? Yes. Have ethical issues been taken into consideration? Yes, it meets correct standards for qualitative studies. Was the data analysis sufficiently rigorous? Yes. Is there a clear statement of findings? There is. However, this is qualitative research, and as such, there were multiple desired outcomes and goals. There's clear discussion of the individual results and findings, but it is not something that can be summarized succinctly. Yeah, so you can't put it into a number needed to treat or to refer to, last episode, a fragility index. All right, the 10th question and the final question How valuable is the research? I think it's very valuable. There are a few studies that have addressed patient needs surrounding opioid use disorder and initiation of medications for it in the emergency department. Prior studies have primarily focused on provider barriers to initiation of medications for opioid use disorder. And thus, this is a helpful trial to providers to understand the patient experience and tailor their conversations to those with true lived experience. All right, that's the quality checklist. Let's go through the key results. There were 26 participants interviewed, seven whom were recruited and interviewed in the emergency department, and the other 19 were recruited and interviewed via video conferencing. Right, the mean age of study participants was 36, and the majority had used an unprescribed opioid within the past two years. The majority had also tried both Suboxone and Methadone, Nearly all participants had emergency department visits related to opioid use, and the goals for participant heterogeneity outlined in the methods were met. Well, there were three themes that we're going to try to pull out of the results section, and Chris and I will go through those three themes. But because we have Elizabeth here as the lead author on this SJAM hot off the press article, we're going to ask her at the end of each of these three themes to add her expertise. So the first thing was decisional needs and factors relevant for decision-making. Factors for decision-making generally fall into either social, pharmacological, or emotional categories. Yeah, and focusing on the pharmacological factors, participants noted the logistical ease of using Suboxone. For example, the at-home dosing versus methadone requiring observed dosing at a pharmacy, and found that Suboxone was effective in helping with withdrawal and avoiding street drugs. 
Well, disadvantages of Suboxone were the ability to sell it and buy illicit opioids, the need to be in severe withdrawal to initiate it, and that it could trigger precipitated withdrawal. It was also noted that with methadone, you could continue using opioids as needed, whereas this wasn't an option with Suboxone, which is both a pro and a con. Nearly all patients were unaware that Suboxone could be initiated in the emergency department and thought it should be offered. Whether it was initiated on that visit or not, even offering it helped to open the door for future use and lessen stigma surrounding medications for opioid use disorder. Many patients also thought that any conversation surrounding medications for opioid use disorder should include both Suboxone and Methadone. So this is such an important point. A lot of the national discussion right now is about how do we increase the prescription of Suboxone from the emergency department? And I'm going to use the term Suboxone because as much as we like using generic terms, our patients know it by Suboxone, not buprenorphine. But the reality is our goal is to save lives and decrease harm. And both Suboxone and Methadone are pathways to that. Methadone is just highly and painfully regulated, which has limited its use. But it is available and it is an option. So our patients were very clear that you can't talk about one without talking about the other. I definitely agree with this. This seems, you know, have, seeing this a lot, uh, I work at a, a site in Calgary that's certainly has a large population of patients with opioid use disorder, and many of them are interested in methadone and not Suboxone only, um, but the just the prescription of it is so much more challenging. One of the things that we learned that I think reinforces this, um, that was a story that I repeat a lot from this study, was a fairly salient theme about one of the benefits of methadone. And that was what we just mentioned, that the ability to keep using street opioids was both a pro and a con. Basically, I'm going to paraphrase a young woman's story. She basically said that people always think that there's this aha moment when someone decides to stop using. But for many of us, there's no moment. And she went on to tell us that her boyfriend dragged her to a methadone clinic. She had no interest in stopping using IV drugs. And she went to the methadone clinic. She kept using. As they upped her methadone dose, she all of a sudden saw that her cravings started to disappear. And in her words, she said, one day I didn't have to use. And then one day became two and two days became three. And her point was that even though she had, there, she had never had that aha moment, she had never been, quote, ready to stop using, the methadone got her there. So it wasn't that the readiness came before starting methadone. The methadone came before the readiness. And that was not something that I had actually considered before and was, I think, a really important story for me on the importance of methadone. Right. There's this real harm reduction with being able to still continue using, I think. And also just watching the patients who have to withdraw so hard before they can initiate Suboxone, it looks very uncomfortable. Moving on to the second theme of the results is informing decisional support. Participants identified that it was important for clinicians to avoid appearing judgmental and hoped clinicians had additional training in discussing the pros and cons of medications for opioid use disorder. They also recognized that clinicians were not experts in medications for opioid use disorder and should be honest about their knowledge. Several noted a peer recovery coach in the emergency department with lived experience would be more beneficial than a physician. And Participants also described readiness 
which was described as an important factor. And they said that they would often be at different stages of readiness to change on each visit to the emergency department. They further identified it was important to offer medications for opioid use disorder at each visit because of this. Coordination with outpatient care was also identified as important. Example, an opioid use disorder clinic and outpatient resource list, psychiatric care, naloxone kit training, peer recovery coach contacts, and comfort medications such as clonidine, acetaminophen. They would all be useful. You guys just went through a ton of really important ideas, but I want to highlight this idea of readiness because we hear a lot about it. Um, And what we've been taught about readiness is actually probably wrong from based on what we were seeing. Many of us see readiness as a sort of screening test. We ask questions like, are you ready to quit smoking? Great. We'll get you a patch and some Shantix. Oh, you're not ready? Okay, well, why don't you think about it? And so we don't offer the Shantix if people say they're not ready to quit smoking. While our patients spoke to us about being ready to quit, many of them gave stories where one little thing said by a nurse or a peer recovery coach pushed them from not ready to ready in the course of one ED visit. There were a few additional relevant themes identified by researchers. Recovery has a different meaning to different people. For example, it can mean complete abstinence from opioids and medications for opioid use disorder for one person. For another, it can mean use of medications for opioid use disorder and no illicit opioids at all. And for a third person, it might even just mean a reduced use of illicit opioids while still on medications like Suboxone or Methadone. And relapse was a part of every single story. And getting to the point of non-use always took multiple attempts and different methods. And I think we've heard that before, whether we're talking about opioids or many other things like smoking. You have to, you have to give more than one attempt, and that's okay. And it shouldn't be looked at as a failure if patients relapse. Yeah, you're not going to be perfect on the first try, really, with anything in life. So why would this be any different, right? I I just reframe it. You're one step closer. Exactly. Participants felt psychiatric care should be integrated into opioid use disorder care as opioid use was frequently in response to their mental health problems, such as depression or PTSD. Yeah, these are great points with so many backstories. I think the main point for physicians is that for every patient we see who's really in the throes of addiction, that's a person with a chance for a full, healthy life. Relapse happens and it is part of recovery um, and that's okay. And I think you guys just said it best. There is very little that happens in our life without failures and relapse is just one of those failures on the path to recovery. All right, that covers the results section. Now it's time to talk a little nerdy and we're going to ask Elizabeth five nerdy questions about her study. So I have the first question and this is about external validity. Two-thirds of your patients were recruited from an urban medication opioid use disorder clinic. How do you think this may have affected your results? And do you think that they have external validity to places like rural communities or other low-resource environments? Yes, this is really important. So I would say that two-thirds of our patients were recruited from medication clinics. Those clinics may have been um, urban, suburban, um, and and rarely rural. So they weren't necessarily totally urban, but they were clinics, and where clinics are located is usually areas with higher population density. 
So these folks, people who are coming from a clinic, are more likely to know about methadone and Suboxone than people who are newer to addiction or have never accessed treatment. And to some degree, this is why we wanted to talk to them in particular, because they had the perspective we needed to design an intervention to help people get on to medications for opioid use disorder. So we were specifically looking for people who had tried different treatment options and had success and failures with different treatment options. The second nerdy question is about shared decision-making. So you mentioned that you did not specifically ask patients about shared decision-making, but that it was brought up by many of them. Why did you not ask it specifically? As a shared decision-making researcher, I feel like shared decision-making is the answer to everything, personally. It fosters autonomy, it encourages empathy, it facilitates healthy communication, and I think it has good downstream consequences for patients and probably also for providers. But the point of this study was to hear what our patients think and not to put words in their mouths. To be perfectly honest, one person did say that we should take away everyone's rights and force them into treatment, but that was not a a particularly popular viewpoint. Nobody else echoed that, so it didn't really make it into results. So we really wanted to hear what they said, not what we thought about it. So we did not ask about shared decision-making specifically. The third nerdy point was about participant heterogeneity. How did you determine the seven groups, because you had seven groups, that you used as goals for establishing participant heterogeneity? And what were the seven groups? So participant heterogeneity is really important. So our groups were people with recent opioid use the last seven days, uh, recent Suboxone use, recent methadone use, people with experience with abstinence without medications for opioid use disorder, people with experience with abstinence from non-injection opioids, so those people who use pills or don't inject people who had an experience with abstinence from injection opioids, and people with experiences with overdoses requiring an emergency department visit. So how did we decide on those people? I would say that this is not particularly scientific. You think about your audience and you think about whose perspectives you want. You want people who have been stable on Suboxone. You want people who have been stable on Methadone. You want people who hate one or both of those things and people who don't use either of them. But you also want people who look just like your emergency department population, people who have overdosed, people who've been in the emergency department recently. For example, if you accidentally recruited a bunch of methadone patients who are all stable on methadone and over the age of 65, you might end up with people who got off street drugs when the street drugs were mostly heroin and not fentanyl, and you'd miss everything about fentanyl. So you have to make sure you get enough heterogeneity that you're not missing sort of broad swaths of the population. I think that's great advice. Know your audience and, uh, you know, trying to get their wisdom, you better know who they are. Yeah, it certainly seems like a good cross section from if I had to think about the patients who come to the emergency department and who you'd want to include. The fourth nerdy question is about non-English speaking patients. So one of the inclusion criteria was the ability to speak conversational English. How do you address this significant limitation for discussing cultural barriers to MOUD in non-English speaking populations? Obviously, it's always best to try to involve people who don't speak English, but it can be challenging with a qualitative study that involves reading transcripts, interviewers, um, transcribing and coding. So we had one person who spoke limited English and he and I went back and forth between his English and my mediocre Spanish. Um, And it was actually clear from our interview that he stopped going to his Suboxone clinic because they did not have Spanish speakers there. And it made it really hard for him to to access the Suboxone because the clinic itself was also not set up for Spanish speakers. We did have a few people who are functionally bilingual and could speak to the issues that they saw around them. 
And as we move forward, one of our community partners is a substance use and mental health community organization that primarily serves our Spanish-speaking population. So we do have peer recovery coaches involved in our research who are native Spanish speakers, and everything we can we do can be vetted by them, not only for language, but for cultural appropriateness. But this can be challenging in a qualitative study. Moving forward as we design interventions, it will be very important to directly assess our interventions from the perspectives of patients who do not speak English. So the fifth nerdy point was about contextual factors. And we're often talking on the SGEM about how things take place in a context. You had a figure in your manuscript to help understand decisional needs in the context of the whole patient. Salient themes of participants' recovery stories, organized via socio-ecological models of addiction. Can you briefly explain this model? And I'll put figure three from your publication into the show notes so people can look more closely at it. Of course. So this model is not ours. It's been used to look at addiction before. But I think that for clinicians, understanding the forces that are helping your patients and the forces that are pushing them back towards drugs can help us see them as whole people and also understand the external forces acting upon them. For example, if you're living with people who use and that's your only place to live, it's going to be really hard to stop using. If you have good psychiatric care and you're motivated by, for example, your children or getting your children back, that's going to help. So looking at a figure like this, you can see all the many different factors that are acting on your patient, and maybe that can help you talk to them about what's going on in their lives, not simply about their opiate use disorder. Yeah, it's a great reminder that as emergency clinicians, you know, seeing patients, we have this very thin slice of information about that person. And people are so much more than their opioid use disorder, their chest pain, their cyclic vomiting, their migraine headaches, their chest pain. They are a whole person and it takes place in a context. So I I just like this for those reasons, because it reminded me to think of people in a context and not just get so reductionist to think, I know this little slice of a person, so I know that person. I don't. I agree. This was a very helpful paper to uh, maybe rehumanize you a little bit with regards to medicine. And uh, so I really liked reviewing it. Yeah, we could all use a little bit more humanity after the last two and a half years. One thing you may not have noticed if you just read the paper without reading the very long supplement is that we completely agree with you about the stories being really important. And we decided at the end of our supplementary materials to add a paragraph about each participant and their individual story. So as much as we could while keeping it de-identified, the supplement has 26 small stories about people, how they got started using illicit opioids and how their recovery has been or hasn't been and the challenges that they've faced. And I think as I read through it, it's a great reminder of the challenges that people face with this particular medical issue. Time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. We generally agree with the author's conclusions. So Chris, can you give me an SGEM bottom line? Yes, absolutely. Consider offering medication for opioid use disorder to patients in the emergency department and tailor treatment to the individual needs and circumstances of each patient. I'd love to say a note about methadone because I'm a little worried that many of you are saying, but I can't offer methadone. So I would say to that, you actually need to question that. I said the same thing two years ago when Dr. Bill Soares said to me, what about 
starting methadone in the emergency room. And now I routinely offer and dose, or I should say, administer methadone in our emergency department. There is a federal uh, law called the 72-hour rule that says that we can administer, not to prescribe, but actually give methadone once a day for up to three days to someone with opiate use disorder as we link them to further care. So yes, it will take some work, but all you need is a methadone clinic who is willing to see your patients in follow-up, and you can start them on methadone in the emergency department. The law does not specify the dose. This is something that we decided with our local methadone clinic. And even if you can't, even if you can't make this happen, you can still discuss these two options with your patients because even if methadone isn't available there in that minute, it is still an option for them and they still need to hear about it from us as one of their options. Yeah, I, I'm going to give a shout out to a local champion of this, one of the emergency physicians in Calgary, Marshall Ross, who really started, started our Suboxone program from the emergency department a couple of years ago, which has been very successful. And we, I'm going to be sending him and a couple of the other addictions medicine specialists that are also emerged docs in Calgary, an email as soon as this podcast's over to ask about how we can start doing methadone, because I don't think it's going to be much of an issue, or at least I hope not. I will say there are some very restrictive methadone laws in the United States, but I do not know Canada's history with methadone. What we do currently is we can get them to clinics that can generally start at the next day, but from the emergency department. We definitely prescribe one-time doses for people who miss their doses and stuff from the emergency department already. So I don't think it's a huge thing. That's exactly what I said. I felt that it was not a huge leap. If we can give people their methadone dose in the emergency room and 20 milligrams or 30 milligrams is not a huge dose, then maybe we can give them that to help them get to the methadone clinic. Exactly. All right, Chris, can you resolve the case that you presented at the start of the podcast? Yeah. So you discuss the availability of Suboxone, which can be prescribed from the emergency department, and methadone from clinics within your city. You discuss the pros and cons of each treatment as best you understand them, and your patient is interested in trying Suboxone at home. You provide them with a list of outpatient clinics that can help with the multifactorial interventions that are needed to address opioid use disorder. So Chris, I think you've already sort of mentioned how you're going to take this qualitative research and apply it clinically. Yeah, the, <laughs> I think I have, but let's just say that the patient agrees to take four doses of Suboxone home, as well as the instructions on when to take the first dose with respect to the development of significant withdrawal symptoms. And he will try to follow up at a local clinic tomorrow. So usually we provide the comment on what do I tell the patient, but I, I feel that we should have an expert like Elizabeth say what she would say to patients. So I think for Suboxone, the most important thing we can do for this community is to make sure they're taking it right. Every person who takes Suboxone too early is another person who's not going to be willing to try it in the future. I tell them they have to wait as long as they can. The worse they feel, the more it's going to help. They can take Tylenol, they could take Clonidine. They want to get as far as possible into their withdrawal and as far as possible past their most recent use before they take the Suboxone. Uh, we also give them instructions on how to escalate their dose. And I would also add that we don't need to be stingy. A lot of the protocols start at four milligrams, and that is probably not enough. We probably should be starting with at least eight and getting them to 16 and sometimes as much as 32 milligrams on the first day if needed. 
we saw a lot of people who were scared of Suboxone, and it was often because they f- took it from a friend or on the street and they were not yet in withdrawal. So we need to make sure that people really understand that this is a medication for when you're in withdrawal and when you're feeling terrible. And we need to get that idea out there so that people do not have bad experiences with it and then refuse to try it again in the future. Well, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner and... There was no winner to Dr. Kirsty Challen's super hard question, and it was the use of imaging to support the diagnosis of a post-operative ileus was first reported in the Journal of the Michigan Medical Society in 1920 by J.T. Case. I hope you've got an easier question for us this week, Chris. All right, let's try this one. Why is naloxone included in Suboxone? And if you know the reason why naloxone is included in Suboxone, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line so I can find that answer. And the first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Now it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on patient perspectives regarding the initiation of medications for opioid use disorder in the emergency department? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGMHOP. What questions do you have for Elizabeth and her team? Ask them on the SGM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Thanks, Chris, for doing this last show, the best show, because it is the show we're currently working on for season number 10. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Ken. Speaking of the last show, The Final Countdown is another great movie with F-14s in it. All right, and thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much to both of you. I think even though we uh, we refer to qualitative research as hypothesis generating, I think that there's a ton to learn from from this particular research about what your patients need to know about methadone and suboxone and how we can help them on their path to recovery. All right, there's only one last thing to do. Elizabeth, can you give the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone in Season 11. Or do my bad habits lead to I hate